Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. From Yale Environment 360, we have a lovely story about how beavers have created a lush wetland after being banished to a remote Idaho valley. (laughs) How do you get beavers to obey a banishment? Like, you find them? I don't know. (laughs) They were forcibly relocated, which I guess is synonymous with banishment. But hasn't bothered them any. They Mm. have transformed the landscape into a lush wetland and a haven against fire and drought. So in effect, they have left it better than they found it. (laughs) Although it is worth saying, in Idaho, beavers can be something of a nuisance. So they chew down trees. They will build dams that flood yards and fields. Obviously, that's a human-centric definition of nuisance. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, in the 1930s, officials began trapping beavers near cities and towns and basically dropped them, sometimes by parachute. And yes, that is (laughs) hyperlinked in the article. I did not deign to click a Upon it, oh. although my generative AI brain is coming up with really adorable cartoon images. Oh, yeah. I'm sure that was not the case in reality. But they basically were like, yo, get away from all of our human habitation. Here's a remote area for you. And in one such area known as Baw Creek, beavers have visibly altered the landscape. We've got some newly released satellite imagery from NASA, and you can clearly see where beavers have erected dams that formed ponds and flooded meadows. Now, these flooded stretches along Baw Creek are well guarded against drought and fire. For example, when the Sharps fire burned through the area in 2018, it left unsinged those parts where beavers had settled. So now NASA is supporting efforts to introduce even more beavers to the landscape. And they're using the satellite data to determine which streams can support beavers and to monitor how resettled beavers alter the flow of water and the growth of plants. I'm just curious. I mean, they say it's satellite imagery, but is it really just more beavers on parachutes with cameras? Like, I mean, (laughs) they're putting little like paintings in front of the satellites at the right distance to make it look like they've actually altered the landscape. (laughs) I mean, they know what they're doing. They've been environmental engineers for, I guess, literally as long as the species has been around, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's weird that when we let animals go back to nature, nature kind of responds. Nature responds okay. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's weird. So strange. Huh. Yeah, obviously the lesson here is that we need to rewild ourselves and get more animal, right? That's mm-hmm. the takeaway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we got to parachute more because that's what beavers <laughs> do, I hear. <laughs> Next link. Next link. This comes to us from BBC.com and it's titled The Australian Town Where People Live Underground. Ooh, are they chuds? <laughs> yeah. What? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, wow, that's an 80s reference. Yes, it yeah, is. It's a very deep cut. <laughs> <laughs> so, on the long road towards Central Australia, as you travel 848 kilometers or 527 miles north from Adelaide's coastal plains, is a scattering of enigmatic sand pyramids. 
These are the first signs of Cooper Petty, an opal mining town with a population of around 2,500 people. In this corner of the world, 60% of the population inhabits homes built into the iron-rich sandstone and siltstone rock. In some neighborhoods, the only signs of habitation are ventilation shafts sticking up and the excess soil that has been dumped near entrances. In the winter, this lifestyle may seem merely eccentric, but on a summer's day, Cooper Petty, loosely translated from an indigenous Australian term that means white man in a hole, needs no explanation. (laughs) It regularly hits 52 Celsius, or 126 Fahrenheit, so hot that birds have been known to fall from the sky and electronics (gasps) must be stored in fridges. Wow. Another benefit is that Cooper Petty generates all of its own electricity, 70% of which is powered by wind and solar. Many underground homes in Cooper Petty are relatively affordable. During a recent auction, the average three-bedroom house sold for around 40000 Australian dollars, which is around 26000 US dollars. Wow. Yeah, super cheap. But I mean, I guess it is an underground house. Right. <laughs> it is literally a hole in the ground. Yeah. <laughs> do they have internet, though? Because if they have internet, I'll live in a hole in the ground. I don't care. Uh, I do not believe they have Wi-Fi. Uh, well... <laughs> So the question is, could underground homes help people to cope with the effects of climate change elsewhere, and why aren't they more common? There are several reasons why making dugouts in Cooper Petty is uniquely practical. The first is the rock. It is very soft. You can scratch it with a pocket knife or your fingernail, says Barry Lewis, who works at the Tourist Information Center. Back in the 60s and 70s, the residents of Cooper Petty expanded their homes the same way they created the opal mines, using explosives, pickaxes, and shovels, which is kind of fun. You're like, I need a new room. It's Minecraft time. Let's just blow it up. Start digging, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Some didn't require much digging at all, with many locals using abandoned mine shafts as a starting point, and today they're often excavated with industrial tunneling equipment. Wright says a good tunneling machine can do about 6 cubic meters or 211 cubic feet per hour, so you could have a dugout made in less than a month. Hmm. One man discovered a large gem sticking out of the wall when he was installing a shower, and a local hotel discovered opals worth 1.5 million Australian dollars while building an extension. So there's Hmm. also a chance you might make some money while you're renovating. And tunneling in Cooper Petty is so straightforward, many locals live in elaborate luxury dwellings with underground swimming pools, game rooms, expansive bathrooms, and high-spec living rooms. Nice. One local has previously described his subterranean home as like a castle with 50,000 tumble bricks and arched doorways to every room. He made the dungeon part of the castle. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's a dungeon. (laughs) So it is a question of moisture, because the feats at Cooper Petty would not be possible everywhere. To waterproof the original London underground tunnels, each one was cased in several layers of brick and a liberal coating of bitumen. Mm. Even with those precautions, there are still regular reports of black mold. The same issue Mm. plagues basements, bunkers, and car parks in high rainfall areas throughout the globe. But in Cooper Petty, conditions are arid even underground. Ventilation shafts are added to ensure an adequate supply of oxygen and to allow moisture from indoor activities to escape, though these are often just simple pipes sticking up through the ceiling. There are some other downsides to these heatwave-proof bunkers. Lewis currently lives above ground on a caravan park after his underground home collapsed. It's also not unheard of for residents to accidentally knock through into a neighbor's house. Which, you know, oh, yeah. awkward. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Either, you know, if you want to live like a dwarf, you want to play Minecraft, you want to live out your Kool-Aid Man fantasy, this place has it all. Something for everyone. <laughs> 
So despite the setback, Lewis misses Dugout Life, and Wright would highly recommend it to anyone who's currently suffering in unreasonably high temperatures. It's a no-brainer when you experience that heat, he says. So perhaps soon, Cooper Petty's peculiar sand pyramids will start popping up in other places, too. Yeah, I feel like here, the limestone would hold up. It wouldn't collapse, but you would have that moisture problem. There's definitely mm-hmm. a water table in this whole area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, flash and then you've flooding. got the humidity outside. Yeah. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. flash flooding. Flood concerns for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's pretty fascinating to me that there are just people out there just still living in caves and doing it. And like, yeah. even at a level of luxury where they're like, yeah, I have 50,000 stone archways or <laughs> whatever. Yeah. If they've got shower, I mean, they seem to be doing all right. In a pharmacy with vitamin D, we're good. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right. From SciTech Daily. Scientists create new material five times lighter and four times stronger than steel. Oh, whoa. Something that's been long sought after for ages are materials that possess both strength and lightness. Mm -hmm. But these two qualities are typically mutually exclusive. Or as my old engineering teacher used to say, there's no free lunch. Mm -hmm. However, research at the University of Connecticut have found an incredibly strong yet lightweight material. Surprisingly, they achieved this using two unexpected building blocks, glass and DNA. What? Oh. Yeah, more on that a little later. First, we got to get through some basics. Strength is relative. Take iron, for example. It can take seven tons of pressure per square centimeter, but iron is also very dense and heavy, weighing 7.8 grams per cubic centimeter. Other materials, such as titanium, they're stronger and lighter than iron. And certain alloys combining multiple elements are even stronger, but are still somewhat heavy, like carbon fiber. Mm -hmm. The scientists report that by building a structure out of DNA and then coating it with glass, they have created a very strong material with very low density. So Mm. as you're assuming, glass might be a surprising choice, right? It shatters easily. However, glass usually shatters because of a flaw such as a crack, scratch, or missing atoms in its structure. Hmm. A flawless cubic centimeter of glass can withstand 10 tons of pressure. (laughs) This is where the article goes on to say, quote, which is more than three times the pressure that imploded the Ocean Gate Titan submersible near the Titanic glass. (laughs) Okay. Too soon, guys. (laughs) But it's extremely difficult to create a large piece of glass without flaws but they can make a very, very small flawless piece. We're talking less than a micrometer thick. Hmm. And since the density of glass is much lower than metals and ceramics, any structure made with flawless nano-sized glass should be strong and lightweight. And here's where the article gets weird and a bit opaque. The team creates a structure of self-assembling DNA. And the article says almost like magnetiles. Do you all know what those are? Are they magnetized tiles? <laughs> That's exactly right. Well, I can imagine it just fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yes, exactly like that. Pieces of DNA of specific lengths and chemistry that snap themselves together into a skeleton-like material. They then coat the DNA with very thin layer of glass, only a few hundred atoms thick. The glass only coats the strands of the DNA, leaving a large part of the material volume as empty space. Mm -hmm. And the voids comprising most of the material's volume make it lightweight. And as a result, the glass nanolattice structures are four times higher in strength, but five times lower in density than steel. Wow. The team is currently working on 
the same DNA structure, but substituting even stronger carbide ceramics for glass. They also have plans to experiment with different DNA structures to see which makes the material the strongest. Hmm. That's where the article kind of leaves us. But, oh, I have so many questions. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, for one thing, it sounds like this is all still on a nano scale. Like they've created a super strong substance, but they haven't built anything out of it. Not yet. I mean, I think it's a little bit like the first discoveries of carbon fiber was pretty right, small right. as well. And then we kind of built on that. But for me, the questions are, what kind of DNA are they using? Uh-huh. And when it breaks, does it shatter like glass? Does it bend? Mm-hmm. Can it be recycled? Can those DNA fragments start to like get absorbed into other organisms, mm-hmm. thereby <laughs> creating genetically modified mm-hmm. accidents? You're half man, half building. <laughs> uh-huh. Right. <laughs> Oh, God, it's the dog skyscraper. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So many questions, but it certainly is damn interesting. All right. That's right. All right, next link. Next link. All right, well, if you spend any time on the internet, you may already know the answer to this next headline, but I promise you don't know all the horrifying details. It's from Live Science, and it's called, What is the Biggest Spider in the World? Oh, dear. Have y'all seen the pictures? I no, mean, thank you. No. Is it the huntsman spider? It is not. Well, technically. So, uh, yeah. So the first thing we have to do is define what we mean by biggest, right? Because if we are talking strictly by leg length, then yes, the giant huntsman or Heteropoda maxima has a full wingspan, so to speak, of 11.8 inches. Their bodies, however, are actually not that big. They're very spindly. And I think Uh, we can all agree that while a spider of that size is going to be frightening no matter what, a larger body really adds something special to it. Yeah, it's got that charm. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So for that, we have to jump to tarantulas, which it turns out are on an entirely different branch of the spider family. Around 90% of spiders are categorized as neomorphs, also known as true spiders. Tarantulas, on the other hand, are considered mygalomorphs, which broke off the evolutionary line much earlier and have maintained several physical features that true spiders have gotten rid of, such as downward-pointing fangs and, as we're most interested in today, a large body size. And so this is why nearly all of your top 10 giant spiders are various species of tarantula, including the West African Hercules baboon spider (gasps) and the Brazilian salmon pink bird eater. But... The biggest of them all is the Goliath bird eater, which has legs almost as long as the giant huntsman, but whose body averages about five inches across and weighs nearly half a pound. No, thank you. Wow. And again, that's just an average. One researcher in the rainforests of South America, where the Goliath bird eater lives, documented one that was so big, it was rustling the underbrush as it scurried along, and it appeared to be the size of a puppy. Oh, no. No, no, mm-hmm. no. Nonetheless, according to Ray Hale, who is an arachnologist and vice chairman of the British Tarantula Society, the Goliath bird eater's name is a bit of a misnomer. They are ground dwellers, so if a baby bird falls out of a nest or is otherwise stranded on the ground, then yes, a Goliath bird eater might opportunistically pounce on one. But they certainly aren't snatching them out of the sky, and the bulk of their diet is made up of crickets, lizards, and frogs. Goliath bird eaters are nearly blind, so they use delicate bristles on their legs and abdomen called urticating hairs to sense slight vibrations that tell them when food is near. They can also release these fibers into the air when threatened, causing irritation to the skin and eyes of their predators. Before they do this, however, they will deliver a warning by rubbing their legs together to produce a high-pitched hissing sound 
And this so-called stridulation is so loud, it can be heard from up to 15 feet away. Yeah, which I actually think is kind of nice. It's like a rattlesnake. Like, they're warning you. They're telling you, like, don't come here. But when it comes to prey, of course, there is no warning. The Goliath bird eater will first bite their prey with their one-inch-long fangs, injecting a lethal amount of neurotoxic venom. Once the prey is dead, it will use those same fangs to inject digestive juices, which will liquefy the animal from the inside and allow the tarantula to slurp their insides out like a smoothie. So I hope you're listening to this while you're having lunch. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. (laughs) The good news is the neurotoxin is not strong enough to affect a human other than sort of feeling like a bad wasp sting. The Goliath bird eater is generally afraid of humans and with good reason, because the native people of the region say that once you singe off the urticating hairs and roast them in banana leaves, they are supposedly quite tasty with a flavor reminiscent of shrimp. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm looking at photos right now. These things, yeah, they're big. There's a lot of photos of somebody just like holding the whole thing in their hand and it Mm. is extending past the fingers oh here's another one that's on a giant dinner plate and it it spans the whole thing yeah uh that's forearm sized yeah they're big well now google knows you want to look at spiders so get ready yeah that's right i'm just hungry you know get yourself a little shrimp for lunch all right next link next link Okay, we need a palate cleanser. So we're going to visit an animal that at least some of you are going to prefer to spiders. We're talking about kitty cats. And Discover has an article about why cats need. Oh. Now, this is not about the needing of a thing like avarice must have. This is those little (laughs) making biscuits, doing the little squishy bits. And it is a very deeply embedded behavior in the cat psyche. So Hmm. why do they do it? And how do you deal with it if your cat is kind of an overactive baker? (laughs) So why is my cat needing me? The most common explanation is that as kittens, cats would do this to the mother's stomach while nursing in order to get the milk flowing. Hmm. And these actions are just deeply ingrained, right? They've got the muscle memory from birth, so much so that even in adulthood, cats will continue to do this to objects, other cats and owners. And although at this point, the needing wouldn't be so much to yield physical nourishment as it would be to provide emotional sustenance. So self-soothing, right? right, It's like sucking your thumb. Exactly right. Mm -hmm. Cats do tend to derive a lot of comfort and satisfaction from this act. Even senior kitties may feel the need to do this in order to self-soothe or just to kind of get in their comfort zone. But there are some other theories about why this behavior persists. Some suggest that cats do this because their wild ancestors did this to grass or other potential bedding material as a way of tamping it down and Hmm. preparing a place to rest, kind of like how dogs can turn in a number of circles before laying down. It's also been suggested that when your cat needs on you, it's not so much because it thinks you're its mother. That's because cat's paws have what are known as interdigital glands, which are scent Mm. glands that activate when their paws flex or when their claws are extended. So Mm. they may be doing this to mark you. (laughs) (laughs) Now, telling the difference between making biscuits or sharpening claws, they do appear superficially similar as behaviors, but they are markedly different in both impulse and purpose. So When a cat needs to sharpen its claws, usually it's not going to pick a person, usually. 
but Mm -hmm. it will often look for something sturdy like a scratching post or if you don't have a scratching post they will invariably hone in on the nicest piece of furniture or woodwork in the house and with sharpening they deploy their claws more fully and they tend to make distinct stretching and pulling motions that are more robust than the gentle repetitive making biscuit motion now if your kitty is inclined to need you're probably never going to completely eliminate the behavior. And definitely, if you don't like it, don't shout, don't hit, don't give negative feedback when they try to engage in this behavior. You're only going to stress them out. You'll probably create a cat that starts clawing or biting instead because now you are interrupting their self-soothing. And listen, no creature likes that. Right. But what about what about just verbal shaming? Can we verbally shame? <laughs> if you're doing it in a calm manner, a la Will Ferrell, I think uh, that's acceptable. Okay. <laughs> Borderline, perhaps. I mean, you'll, you'll find out. The cat will let you know. <laughs> yeah, yes, they will. But really, you want to work on a certain amount of tolerance and deflection or redirection. So if your cat is really into this and really is dead set on needing you, designate a special object of need. That is in quotes, and it is something that most animal behavior experts recommend. So every time the cat comes over, starts the routine, just gently place them on or near that designated object. And if you do this often enough, eventually they'll realize that the blanket or whatever you choose is the preferred target, which will hmm, save your lap, save your sanity, and keep your cat happy and calm. I mean, maybe. Yeah, or maybe I wish it was it's that just easy. plotting <laughs> the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, that may be also self-soothing behavior, right? That's right. World domination <laughs> is very self-soothing, y'all. <laughs> Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from newatlas.com. It's titled, A first-of-its-kind cancer drug targets mechanism that causes metastasis. Ooh. So, epithelial to mesenchymal transition, or EMT, is the process by which cancer cells migrate from the primary tumor site to form metastases in other areas of the body and develop resistance to cancer treatments like chemo and radiotherapy. In an effort to stop cancer's spread, researchers from the Université Libre de Brussels in Belgium developed a therapeutic antibody that specifically targets EMT, and so far the results of the clinical trials look promising. Previous studies have found that if the interaction between Netrin-1, a protein that's overexpressed in a number of cancers, and its receptor UNC5B was blocked, it triggered cancer cell death and inhibited EMT. So the researchers developed an anti-Netrin-1 antibody, which they called NP-137. To evaluate NP-137's mechanism of action, they first tested it on mouse models of endometrial cancer, a type of cancer in which Netrin-1 is significantly overproduced. After treating the mice for three to four weeks, they found that NP-137 was associated with decreased development of endometrial tumors and increased survival with a reduction in cancer cells. The researchers also noted a decrease in EMT-related genes. They then moved on to clinical trials in humans to examine the drug's efficacy. Fourteen patients with advanced endometrial cancer were administered NP-137 as the only therapy once every two weeks. At six weeks, the observers reserved a 51.2% reduction in target lesions and up to a 54.7% in reduction in lesions during the following six months. Wow. Yeah, really impressive. For eight trial participants, 57.1%, their cancer remained stable. 
One participant exhibited a partial response according to the response evaluation criteria in solid tumors, or RESIST criteria, meaning at least a 30% reduction in the diameter of target lesions. That's huge, right? Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's really massive. And even if it doesn't work in all cases, the fact that it can work at all is is great. Yeah. And further, the drug was well tolerated and showed no toxicity, which is huge Hmm. in comparison to treatments like chemo. Yeah. 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 (laughs) No toxicity. Yeah, this might not always work work for everybody but if it does it's it's a great potential alternative yeah i don't think there's a 100 for anyone right yeah but if we're even in the like 80 percentile that's and i mean huge. if you can use these things to reduce them by 50 and then get the rest with chemo mm-hmm. like i mean mm-hmm. you combo can use treatments combination can get even more effective yeah sure yeah so the NP137 trial is still ongoing with patients continuing to receive treatment with the drug. The researchers will release a full report of the results after the final data analysis, but they already have their eye on using the drug to treat other cancers. And that's basically where the article ends. Things are still in process, but the fact that they're already reporting on it, they're already seeing really yeah. good results out of it, that's very impressive. Yeah, no, once you start on human trials, it actually matters. Yeah. Everything before then, it's like, oh, cool, we did this to some mice. Give us another 10 years and we'll right. see. But yeah. if you're at the human trial stage, those results actually might mean something for somebody. Yeah. Next link. Next, Next link. link. Well, for luckier rats than our last story, uh, <laughs> this is from the Smithsonian. Uh, have you all seen the explain your job poorly thread on Twitter? I'm sorry, on X. <laughs> yes, ah, yes, yes, I have. Yes, yes. <laughs> okay, here's the article. Tickling rats reveals a brain region linked to laughter and play. Mm-hmm. I mean, that doesn't sound like a bad description. That sounds like a great job. <laughs> no, no, I mean, but explain your job poorly would be like, I tickle rats and write stuff down. <laughs> yeah, uh, sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> so apparently rats love to play games and be tickled. And when tickled, they've been known to let out high-pitched noises similar to <gasps> laughter. Now, researchers say they've identified the region of the rat's brain that's primarily responsible for the creature's gaiety according to a new paper published last week in the journal Neuron. This discovery could help inform the study and treatment of depression and anxiety in humans, since play may be one of the keys to mental and emotional well-being. We don't know a whole lot about play and its purpose in mammals, but play may help mammalian brains grow, and it could contribute to social and emotional development. Quote, neuroscience tends to focus very much on adverse things, says study co-author Michael Brech, a neuroscientist at the Humboldt University of Berlin. He says there's relatively little research on positive emotion, which I tend to think is a mistake. Mm. And <laughs> I agree. Mm-hmm. Uh, to better understand the neural underpinnings of play and laughter, researchers implanted electrodes into the brains of rats, as they do. And because rat laughter is too high-pitched for human ears to hear, scientists also rigged up an ultrasonic microphone to record any sounds the animal <laughs> I'd love to hear those pitch down yeah. uh, and hear <gasps> what it sounds like. New rat yeah. sample. <laughs> At rats. least they didn't, like, modify the rat's vocal cords so they're like, uh, so oh, we could. <laughs> throw it in auto-tune. You got a hit on your hands. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And then once rats were sufficiently settled in their environment, the researchers began engaging them in several different ways. They tickled the rats on their bellies as well as on their backs and got the animals to chase the researcher's hand as it moved around the inside of their enclosure. Finally, the scientists let pairs of rats play together in the same box. 
by analyzing the brain's activity during the tickling and play, the scientists could see that a particular area of the brain called the periaqueductal gray, uh, so PAG for short, was mm. lighting up. In contrast, when the researchers put the rats in an environment known to make them anxious upon a platform or under bright light, PAG activity was suppressed, even when the rats were tickled. Oh, that mm-hmm. even tickling is enough to get them over the fear <laughs> of a bright light. <laughs> and then they, just to make sure, they then used a chemical to stop the rats' PAG neurons from working correctly. And as they expected, when tickled or playing, they lost interest quickly and did not laugh. So taken together, the findings suggest that PAG plays a critical role in playfulness in rats, probably humans. So naturally, the researchers wondered whether the same could be true for other animals like us who have very large PAG regions in their brains. Mm. I would love to get a prescription to go to Disneyland. (laughs) Prescription to play. Mm-hmm. A prescription uh-huh. of tickling. Uh, you just somebody comes to your house, a therapist <laughs> nope. to tickle. No, nope. I got an allergy to that. No, thank mm-hmm. you. Doctor tickles. Yeah. Mm. Oh no. 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 <laughs> this is why our pag regions don't work anymore, y'all. We're too jaded. <laughs> That's right. All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include. Underground cells make dark oxygen without light. Our galaxy is home to trillions of worlds gone rogue. And we are all animals at night. So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on damninteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye. 